Combat to Exile on Bash Street. And it's time to go back to the 80s yet again as we uh, delve into the Wrestling from the 80s videotape collection by the man who is my co-host on this show, the one, the only, John McAdam. And John, we got a lot of uh, positive response from the first show. A lot of people really enjoyed the, the conversation about that uh, these tapes. And uh, the way this one looks here, we're going to have some interesting stuff to talk about here. So uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. You know, and I, I mean, you know this. I mean, coming in, you explained the con- concept to me. And I was like, I, I didn't really understand it. And I was like, you know, okay. I was kind of thinking, wow, this sounds like a bomb. But And then I, I thought about it. And I'm like, you know what? Just let Chris lead you, and everything will be fine. And it was fine. I really enjoyed uh, being on the show. I enjoyed hearing the show last time. And I have faith in you, sir, and you, you proved me right. <laughs> well, I think we'll, ha- we'll, we'll continue the, the good uh, streak here. And so, you know what's scary? Three. Yeah. In about 14, uh, no, in about 16 months, everything from the 80s is going to be at least 30 years old. And some oh, of these things are going to be forty years old. That, that is downright frightening to me. I'll be. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be forty next year, and I'm just can't wrap my head around that yet. <laughs> I just turned thirty nine a couple weeks ago, and it's just like, woo. <laughs> you know, let me tell you this. I sweated out turning forty like I never sweated out turning any age ever. <laughs> and your forties are fun. They really are. Yeah. When you hit 50, well, it sucks, but 40s are fun. 30s are fun. I thought I thought when I turned 30, life was going to suck, and you know, th- my 30s were great. So don't anyone worry about being in your 40s. Yeah. 50s suck, but yeah, we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just enjoy it while we can. <laughs> All right, we start with volume three here. We picked up where we left off at, and the first match on here was actually another version of a match on the other di- uh, take that we talked about in last show. The uh, Ole Anderson turn on Dusty Rose against the Assassins at the Omni. So we talked about that last time. So we won't talk about that again. But right, right after this is an interesting match. Stan Lane and Dennis Condry as a tag team versus Terry Taylor and David White from Atlanta Television 1980. <clears throat> so we have Bobby Eaton's Midnight Express tag partners teaming up here in 1980. Yep. On Georgia television. And Dennis Condry, uh, not too long after this, would become the Georgia heavyweight champion. And Stan Lane had already been the tag team of Brian St. John in Florida and was starting to you know work around a few different places. And then you got Terry Taylor, who's a rookie here. So three out of these four guys would become, you know, big time stars in the business. And uh, it's, it's good. It was interesting to see them in this environment. And I remember seeing this match for the first time, like being blown away because I never n- knew about, you know, this era of these guys here working for George Jones wrestling. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always interesting, especially looking back at guys who were just starting out and they're just, you know, you know, you know who they are. Like I knew in 1980 who Stan Lane was from the magazines, from his run with Brian St. John uh, in Florida. Uh, obviously, I know who, I knew who Dennis Condry was. Uh, Terry Taylor, like you said, he was just just getting started, uh, just getting started. And Terry Taylor, you know, to this day, I think is one of the most underrated guys out there. I think he could have had a huge career. And when I say that, I mean, 
you know, his absolute ceiling really, truly could have been NWA champion. And I know a lot of people just just said, wait, what? He was a great worker. He was an excellent interview. He was good as a babyface. He was good as a heel. He could have used a little more bulk, but, you know, that's doable if you stop and think about it. Um, I mean, I thought, you know, Terry Taylor, one of the problems with Terry Taylor was that Dusty Rhodes didn't like him. And for whatever reason, I think Vince McMahon didn't like him, and he just got stuck taking whatever roles he could, you know, after he bought him out of Crockett in 1987. Yeah, the two worst people in wrestling to have as people that aren't really fans of you at that time period were Dusty Rhodes and Vince McMahon. Yeah, you know, I mean, powerful guys in the business. Where are you going to go after that? He wasn't uh, the kind of American who was going to get over in Japan. Uh, but if you look at it, you know, right before Bill Watts sold uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation, I mean, T- Terry Taylor was in line to get a huge push. Uh, he had just turned heel, and Watts had always pushed him uh, when he was a babyface. I mean, he was North American champion. Yeah, I mean, that, that was actually the best run of his career, I thought, when he turned heel in 87. And going to 88, you know, before we went to WWF, he was tr- tremendous as a heel, you know, because he had been babyface his whole career. And here he is as a heel, and he just, he was a totally different guy. Yeah. You know, he went from being like that mild-mannered Clark Kent type guy to this arrogant asshole, you know. I mean, he, he was great in that role. Him and Eddie Gilbert played off each other very well. And then, you know, when he went to Dallas, he had, he had a really good run in Dallas against Chris Adams and the Von Erichs there. Yeah. And everything fell apart. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't really make a living in Dallas at that point, or at least you couldn't make a good living. But t- when Terry Taylor turned heel, he reminded me of one of the bad guys in the bad guy fraternity of uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Stan Gable. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Terry Taylor's definitely an alpha beta type guy, and no doubt. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've always thought it was a shame that, you know, Neither the people in charge of the NWA or WWF could put their personal biases aside and just, you know, use this guy and make money with him. I mean, instead of burying him with the Red Rooster gimmick, you know, Terry Taylor himself for I mean, the Red Rooster was now 30 years ago. And Terry Taylor himself will tell you that, no, no, it was a good gimmick. It didn't ruin my career. Yes, it did, Terry. I'm sorry. It did. Your his career never recovered from that. Um, I remember I was at the New Jersey Meadowlands, and there was a match, and he was getting oh, – he was over in the NWA. Like the NWA fans were willing to forgive the Red Rooster gimmick until like he totally did a job to Stan Hansen, and the crowd turned on him, and, started, and the Red Rooster chant started. And this was maybe – a year and a half after they bagged the gimmick. Like, you know, we talk about Terry Taylor. That's what, Today, that's what we talk about. So you can't say, you know, it, 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 was, it was a gimmick that ruined a guy's career. And it's a shame because Terry Taylor, I think, had so much potential. Absolutely. Well, speaking of guys that had potential, the next match on this was Jerry Lawler against Ricky Morton and a notice qualification match from Louisville, Kentucky in December 1979. And you noted here that Morton looked completely different here than he did with the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, he was short-haired, white meat baby face. But you could tell that Ricky Morton, who was, you know, again, basically a rookie here, he was a guy that already had was a really good worker. He was team with Ken Lucas, and it wasn't going to be long before he broke out, and, and he did. And uh, he's also involved in the next match, too, which will bring uh, tie it all together. 
Eddie Gilbert and Ricky Morton as a babyface tag team in Memphis against Masafuchi and Asusha Nita in the Tupelo Concession Brawl Part 3, the third one. And this brawl may have been the best of the bunch because uh, you got Morton potatoing on Nita with a glass mustard jar. That was crazy. Where Anita's, where Anita's ears about to just explode. You got everything in the kitchen. Tojo and the wife of the owner of the, the kitchen going at it with a broom handle. I mean, this is full-on insanity. So two parts here. A, your thoughts on young Ricky Morton. And B, the insanity of this concession stand brawl. You know, there are guys that, I mean, I, I, there are some guys I'm like, well, I saw something in him, and it turned out that I was right. Ricky Morton, I looked at back around, you know, when I first got familiar with him, which was through the magazines in the very early 80s, like 80, 81. And then I got to see him on Southwest Championship Wrestling on USA Network. And at the time, to me, he looked like just another guy, as you said, kind of a white bread baby face, you know, then kind of a, a dime a dozen guy. And Morton, really, thanks to Jerry Lawler, found his niche as a member of the Rock and Roll Express. And it, he was put – I'm not saying anything bad about Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton was one of – I think one of the greatest baby faces of all time, an absolutely fantastic worker. Um, but he found – you know, there are a lot of guys like that, and they have to find their place. And, and Morton found his place as clearly the number one guy in the Rock and Roll Express, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And your thoughts on the concession stand brawl when well, you saw it the first time? That was – it was the best of the three of them by far. I mean like you said, these guys went over the top. But there's something you know that needs to be said, and Jim Cornette has pointed this out, and he's right. When you see something like that for the first time, when it was – it was Lawler and Dundee against uh, Ferris. The I Blonde think? Bombers. Okay, yeah, yeah the Blonde Blazers. Bombers. Yeah. And you see something like that for the first time, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And just every time you use it, it becomes less and less effective. And now you're using guys who are – you're using the concession stand brawl on guys who are in the middle of the card. I mean Morton, Gilbert, Onita, and Fucci were not main eventers. They were you know, the third or fourth match down on the card. And to spend a concession stand brawl like that, you know, that's why it became less and less effective. And I believe that was the last one. The last one from Tupelo, because they did three in three years. They they did the, the first one in 79. 80 was uh, Ricky and Robert Gibson against the Blonde Bombers. And then 81 is this one. And then they don't do another concession stand brawl again uh, until six years later in Evansville. Okay, that's Bronx. right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, the Carl Fergie, Brickhouse Brown, uh, Lawler, Dundee, because brawl. Yeah. They were so desperate to get poor old Brickhouse over. <laughs> that um, was a nut wild one, too. Randy Hales even juiced in that one. Yeah. And, you know, they, I mean, but as far as quality goes, the best one was definitely the Morton and Gilbert against Fucci and Onita one. And the poor woman whose husband was running the concession stand, you know, they used to not smarten anybody up. They used to – I mean, the guy running the concession stand probably wasn't smartened up, and his wife certainly wasn't. And she thinks, you know, these crazy pro wrestlers are beating up on her husband. <laughs> 
And everyone's slipping all over the place because of the mess, ketchup and mustard on the ground. And this chick's going nuts trying to go after Tojo. It was it was insane. I loved it. Exactly. And uh, Eddie Gilbert's another guy. He was uh, a white meat baby face here like Ricky Morton. And then, of course, he went through his transformation again in Memphis to a couple years later. I mean, Eddie Gilbert, if there was a more white meat baby face ever than Eddie Gilbert in the WWF, he's Bob Backlund's protege, for God's sake. And I remember just none of us liked him because he was, you know, just came across as this lame guy. And I remember when I saw him in Georgia, after he had turned heel, he was with Jimmy Hart and he had completely transformed. And it almost came across as, okay, this guy, I know what, I know who he is, and this guy with the blonde hair and the beard and, you know, being the bad guy. I'm like, he's such a phony. I hate him. But that's what wrestling's all about. That's what being a wrestling heel is all about. Absolutely. And uh, Gilbert and Morton, of course, they were – and they were feud again 10 years later in Memphis. Yeah. And for a short while, too. So the all came back together. I'm, I'm just looking back. I would get up. I, I think that show was on at 6 in the morning on a Saturday morning, and I would get up you and watch it. You talking about the Holy it. Show? Yeah. It was uh, – you're, you're close. I think it was like 7, 7.05 or 7.35 or some crap like that. I, I think you're it close. started at 6 in the morning, and then they finally moved it to 7 in the morning. And then it, I think eventually got to 9. Oh. <laughs> so it was slowly making its way – down, down the, the, the corridor. But, uh, yeah. And to this day, I wonder what was on – I don't remember. I probably knew back then. But what was on WTBS at 9 in the morning that was so important on a Saturday on a cable station in 1984 that they couldn't just put the wrestling on when it was supposed to be on? Uh, Bonanza, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> They played a lot of Bonanza on Saturday mornings. I remember that. You know, I mean, it, as, um, as bad as that product yeah. was, and I'm sorry, I mean, it was comically bad uh, for the most part. It's still wrestling, and people would tune in to see wrestling on cable TV. So why not just give it a better time slot? It made no sense. I know. I know. I'm, try- I'm actually trying to find a TV listing here as we talk uh, to see what was on at the time. Okay, November 1984. On uh, November twenty fourth. All right. All uh, right. Re- wrestling was at nine o'clock. Okay. They got it at nine o'clock. Now right, that's still early. Seventeen. Here's your channel seventeen uh, lineup here. Starcade at seven o'clock. The game right. show. Right. Uh huh. Get smart. <laughs> the, the okay. Show. Get smart I... had been on uh, reruns on cable. I mean, I remember watching it in like seventy seven, seventy eight, like at six at six o'clock at night. So this is an old rerun. Yeah, yeah then High Chaparral, an old Western uh, television show. Then Oli. Then a movie, A Man Alone. Then SEC Football, Mississippi State at Ole Miss. And then another movie, Orlando Wilson, Motor Week, then WF, and then so on and so forth. So there you go. Oh, man, the Egg Bowl on TBS. <laughs> yes. Bob Neal and Tim Foley, the old the old announcing for the TBS <laughs> uh, SEC Football. All right, now let's uh, explore Japan for the first time in this show. And we got pretty much every match left on this disc is from Japan. I mean, tape from Japan. Terry Funk against Jumbo Sharuda from All Japan, 1982, three and three quarter stars. And Terry, watching Terry Funk in All Japan is a totally different Terry Funk than you'll see anywhere else. 
and in, in the eighties. Wouldn't you agree? I, I totally agree. And I I wish in a way that Terry Funk had brought that persona more to the United States. I mean, I, I loved what he did when he was in uh, WCW in 1989. I wouldn't I would want to change any of that. But and I, I actually really liked him in the WWF, too. I can't lie. But like early 80s, Terry Funk and at the risk of being blasphemous, would you say he was borderline irrelevant in the United States? Um, well, he wasn't around. Uh, he, I'd say at an 82, there's the last time he worked on semi-regular because he would, he worked in Florida. He worked in Georgia. He, he did a shot in Memphis in 83, but in eight from 83 to early 85, that's when he showed up for Crockett for that one little shot. Yeah. Uh, as a bounty hunter, uh, he was yeah he he worked very rarely in the United States, very rarely. And when he was in Florida, yeah, he kind of came across. I mean, he was Dory Funk Jr.'s little brother, but he kind of came across as a, a a number two to Dory. Uh, and well, yeah, Dory had been the the Booker and was pushed himself up. Yeah, uh, in '82, Terry had the feud with had a run with Dusty and actually turned babyface at one point, team with Dusty. Uh, in fact, the team with Dusty in Georgia in 82 as well. So there was that. But yeah, 83 and 84, Terry in the United States is kind of not around. It's mainly, you know, he has J- J- Japan retirement, of course, which he comes back from the next year. But yeah, he takes a lot of time off and he's doing a lot of stuff. He was doing that uh, TV show with uh, Jim Barney, uh, Ernest, which I can't remember the name of that show. They got on ABC. So he was doing television. He was doing stuff like that. And uh, he would do shots of Puerto Rico, but yeah, he was. It wasn't until '85 when he did the stuff with Crockett, and then came back and went full time with WF that you know he became relevant again in America. Yeah, and you know when I say Terry Funk, you know borderline irrelevant, I say that relative to his talent. I mean, I I missed or I I understand why it didn't happen. His bread and butter was in Japan, but I mean I would have I would have loved to see him have a major run in Georgia where he's the top heel and the Georgia heavyweight champion or the United States champion with Crockett because that, that that's his level of talent right there as opposed to sporadic appearances and you know standing behind Dory Funk Jr. but once again I, I get it he's only you know that's his, not his top priority Japan was his top priority I mean yeah just think about him in Georgia in late 82 with you know feuding with Piper or something you know? yeah that would have been crazy good <laughs> and Jumbo I mean Jumbo's a guy who he's one of the all-time greats, and you know there's been some polarizing opinions of him. But when Jumbo stepped, it, I mean, when Jumbo was in a big match, he stepped it up, and he's he's a legend. He's one of the greatest of all time, and Terry Funk was one of his best opponents. I am. This is the first time I've heard that there are polarizing opinions of Jumbo Saruda, Although Day, I, I don't. Day, yeah, Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer had it years ago, and it kind of perpetuated around after that. That. Uh, Jumbo was perceived by some as a lazy worker on house shows. Well, who was it? For like, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of wrestlers, you know, 
I mean, if, if you are, you know, it's it's just another Wednesday night on the road. You know, I had a, a wrestler once tell me, you know, his job was to stay healthy, to to travel and to stay healthy. This was the WWF mentality in the late '80s, but it's it's so true. I mean, if you have to go out there six nights a week, every week, and perform, you have to make it a priority to pick your spots and not get hurt. Absolutely. And these guys, you know, a lot of the time they're playing in pain anyway. Just deliver for me when you need to deliver. You know, in the big match and the, the television matches. You know, uh, is, it, is it not the best for the live crowd at those shows? Maybe not, but still. They know the deal. They should know the deal, at least. You know? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's a house show. You know, I, I, even as a kid growing up, I kind of knew, like, if I went to a Sunday night match at the, you know, Ice Arena up in Manchester, New Hampshire to see the WWF... I wasn't expecting to see anything really happen. I was just there to see wrestling and to see the stars up close. Yeah. All right, next up from Japan, we get a uh, – I'm going to group all these together. They're, so they're not all together on the tape, but I'm going to group them all together so I can talk about them as a, as a pile. Sure. Granamata versus Babyface. Tiger Mask, original, Satoru Sayama, against Brazo de Plata, people know Super Porky. Black Tiger versus Granamata. Then we have Tiger Mask versus Black Tiger, Tiger Mask versus Viano uh, Tercero, who just recently passed, and Tiger Mask versus Gran Hamada. Some from Japan, some from Mexico. And you, I mean, you saw Tiger Mask in WWF in 1982. So you, I mean, you saw him before a lot of people actually really got to see him, you know, in the tape trading circuit. But what, what was it like seeing him and his contemporaries here do this style of action that was not being done in the United States. I mean, it was it was just a blow away level of you know athleticism. I mean, I remember when I first started trading tapes. Well, let me let me take a step back. Um, I remember watching WWF wrestling in 1982, and they had this guy. They announced this guy Tiger Mask was going going to be on, and right away I was not impressed by that name. And then I see this guy in the tiger mask, and he's not very big, and I am underwhelmed, to say the least. And I couldn't believe what I, what I saw next. This guy had – I mean, there was no such thing as gravity with this guy. He could fly around and do whatever he wanted like a superhero. And I, I just remember you know, being completely blown away by tiger mask, and – you know, I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but here's the thing. Like when he was with the AWA, I remember missing – not when he was with the AWA. When AWA did the show from Minneapolis, and they were showing the matches on, ES, on ESPN, uh, Super Clash, I think it was, the one from the stadium in, in Minneapolis. Uh, you talk about Russell Rock. Russell Rock, thank you. And they were yeah shoot- when they had Tiger the other Tiger Mask uh, Masao when he was under the mask. right and I remember there was I knew the Tiger Mask was going to be on this show I couldn't wait for ESPN to show it and they never did and I of course I had no idea that it was a different Tiger Mask and this guy didn't fly around like the other one but I was I was so looking forward to seeing it and uh, I never quite did but anytime you know in the eighties sometimes I would be just in a regular social circle, and someone would be like, oh, yeah, he's the wrestling guy. And about once a year, 
someone I would be introduced to someone, oh yeah, he's a wrestling fan too. And the guy would say be like, Look, I don't know if you're gonna know this, but I saw this guy, his name was Tiger Mask, maybe five years ago. And that's how that's how much people remembered him just from his I think he was on WWF TV two or three times. But he just blew everyone away. Yeah, the a Saito match. Uh, he had Eddie Gilbert, and I think a couple job matches on television. Yeah, so three or four times, and uh, he blew everyone away. And then and and then you got these opponents that he's facing here, and they're all in their prime too, like Brazo de Plata before he became really fat. <laughs> then you got uh, Black Tiger, who was the nemesis of the Tiger Mask character, <laughs> and then you got uh, Viano Tessera, who's one of the all-time greats. And the history of Lucha Libre and uh, Gran Hamada, who is like the godfather of this scene, and you know one of the greatest trainers in the history of wrestling as well. And I mean, th- these guys, th- this is the beginning of that junior heavyweight style that has gone into today's wrestling. These guys were were doing it. They were mixing the regular Lucha Libre with the Japanese style of wrestling, and Boom! It became a, a phenomenon in Japan. Yeah, I mean, you know, to this day, I can watch that that junior heavyweight tournament from 1987, where all the guys just you know went out of their way to have blow away matches. And it's funny, you know, we always talk about how in pro wrestling, maybe in everything, more is less because you turn on an NXT pay per view now. And these guys are doing the things that, you know, the junior heavyweights were doing 30 years ago. And instead of being blown away by it, you're like, oh, no, that was good. I mean, I've seen it a million times before, but it's still good, you know, but it's not what it once was. Yeah, because, I mean, just like, and that's just everything, though. Everything in entertainment, you know, once it's been done, the novelty wears off. I mean, just seeing, seeing the big, big guys do stuff like that now, you know, it's pretty crazy. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's just you you got to constantly stay fresh. And what these guys were doing back then was extremely fresh. And you watch it now, like, if you don't have the appreciation in your head that what you're watching, you put yourself in that time span, that's kind of where you need to be. If you're watching a, a match, you know, from Tiger Mask or Dynamite Kid, like, okay, I, let, let me put myself back in 1982. And be whoa, you know, this is crazy seeing this type of stuff. Especially so. compared to the to the stuff that the WWF was doing. I mean, you've got on the <laughs> yeah. same card, you've got Tiger Mask Sayama doing what he's doing, and you've got Big John Stud. <laughs> yeah. You got you got uh Big John Stud or you got Bear Mikel Sakluna. Superstar Billy Graham, the nineteen eighty two version. Yes. Yes, it was a definite breath of fresh air, no <laughs> doubt. Now, you also have some Japanese heavies on here. Tatsumi Fujinami against Ashurahara, and Tatsumi Fujinami and Kingo Kimura against Riki Choshu and Katara Hoshino. Fujinami, of course, graduated from the junior heavyweight scene and became a heavyweight. And this stuff right here, this is the beginning of the Choshu's army deal, and we're getting that era. And uh, when did you first start getting Japanese wrestling on tape? Uh, I want to say early 1987, and it was something coming in I wasn't particularly interested in, in, to be honest with you, because 
the Japanese wrestling, I mean, it, it really wasn't like American wrestling where the guys would have crazy gimmicks and they'd do crazy promos and the, 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 we would have these blown up personalities. With Japanese wrestling, you're basically there just to enjoy the matches. And it was it, it was an acquired taste for me, but in the 80s and early 90s, like I really grew to just love Japanese wrestling. Like I could stay home on a Friday night by myself with a you know a, a, a pint of frozen yogurt and just sit there and watch Japanese wrestling for hours. Yeah, because you guys, you know, uh, your peers of your era, you, Steve Minari, Dave, uh, Steve Freelander. You know, guys of, of your era, I mean, y'all y'all were the, Jeff Lynch, of course, y'all were the first guys to really start getting these Japanese wrestling tapes around. And it's different than just trading your, you know, territory, you know, from, from the United States for another territory. This is from another country. So you got a whole different dynamic here, the people that were getting it directly from Japan. So, yeah, it, it's interesting how, the, how that happened, that you know, the late 80s definitely was a time when that started to get going. And then the wrestlers are starting to watch it themselves in the, that generation of the young wrestlers are starting to get into it. So, yeah, Japanese wrestling and its effect on the American wrestling uh, has definitely been a huge deal in the last 35 years. Yeah, you know, uh, another thing about it, like I, I didn't know anything about Japanese wrestling because it wasn't covered in the magazines or, or it was barely covered in the magazines. Kaiser might give it a page. Bill Apter once personally told me that they did an article on Japanese wrestling, I want to see an essay in 85 or 86 um, in one of the magazines. And at the end of it, they were like, hey, if you're interested in this, write to us and let us know. And Apter told me they did not get one single letter. Wow. As in zero. Wow. Yeah. So my interpretation um, before I started getting the tapes as someone who knew nothing about Japanese wrestling is that, you know, oh, yeah, it's kind of minor league compared to the United States. And, you know, I don't you know, I don't know why Bruiser Brody is over there all the time instead of you know, having a big career over here. Well, it's because he was making a ton of money in Japan. Exactly. Well, you have another match for Japan on here between two famous American wrestlers, and this is one of the one probably one of the greatest matches in the history of New Japan Pro Wrestling, and it's not a very long one, but just for the action. Andre the Giant versus Stan Hansen from September 1981, and people, I, it, it's it's been interesting to me to watch people's reactions whenever I I see them talk about this match, for, seeing it for the first time. Especially people that never really experienced Andre before he got broken down, and they're like, "Wow, Andre could do, could do a lot of stuff. He could really he could move." And like, well, yeah, I mean, Andre, Andre's a guy. If if you only know Andre from the the mid to late '80s, then you don't fully understand how good of a performer Andre really was in the ring. And this match is one of the matches that the, the show that Hanson. Of course, Hanson in Japan is going to be awesome anyway. So the two legends here. What were your thoughts when you saw this for the first time? Well, I was told coming in that it was the best Andre the Giant match of all time. And to this day, I agree with that. Um, I saw an Andre the Giant versus Adrian Adonis match in Boston that may have been better because Adonis just bumped around like a pinball. But there's no tape of that. I saw it once, you know, 36 years ago. And, you know, who knows? But... 
That match was awesome. I also could not get my mind around at the time the idea that Andre the Giant was a bad guy somewhere because he was portrayed <laughs> uh, in the United States and in the after magazines in the WWF. He was just the, the nicest, kindest person ever. You couldn't even possibly imagine him being a bad guy, which probably is what made uh, one reason why his heel turn was so effective. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was he was beloved by the kids and he was a special attraction. And, you know, he just one of these that you never would see in that role. But you watch him in Japan. He was tremendous as a heel in Japan. And he carried it over to the United States, you know, when the WF turned him in 87. So absolutely. No doubt. And it makes you wonder a little bit, like, why no one ever tried it before. And I think maybe one reason is, well, Andre really was used most effectively as a traveling, you know, undefeated superstar. Yeah, Yeah, because he didn't stay in a territory. Uh, And when he's in WWF, he's in WWF, you know, in the the 80s. So if he's not traveling around and he's there in one spot other than going to Japan, then, yeah, you have more uh, creative liberties with it. Because if he goes to Portland, he's going to be a Bayface. And then he'll go to Florida, he'll be a Bayface. And go to World Class, he'll be a Bayface. Because... He's a, a traveling, you know, sideshow, traveling attraction. You don't want to, you don't want to have somebody booked as a heel in that way. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, let's say the WWF had turned Andre, let's say in 1976, and they had Bruno Sammartino defending the title against Andre the Bad Guy Giant with Blasi Albano, Wizard, whoever is his manager. Yeah, you would have drawn huge crowds with that show, with that attraction, but you also would have ruined Andre as far as being undefeated and the special attraction. So they were far better off playing it the way they played it. Exactly, exactly. All right. Oh, one more match on this one that we got to talk about. And this match appears on a lot of your tapes. (laughs) This could be the match that maybe on the most tapes that you have. Uh, Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler, Empty Arena. How did you know? I think I made that observation maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Like, I would just get a compilation tape from someone, and I'd be like, oh, no, this is on another one of my tapes. And, and, and what's funny is I have it on, on multiple tapes that you, that you have, and, and all of them are in different video quality. It's amazing <laughs> <laughs> to see it. But, yes, this is a legendary match. I've talked about it ad nauseum on podcasts, but I definitely want to get your take on this because – this is something that really was not a thing until it started hitting the tape traders. And everybody's like, whoa, this is just unbelievable. Uh, what did you think about it the first time you saw it? Well, they, they covered it in, in, I believe, a copy of, a, of the Wrestler magazine that they had one of the after uh, photographers go down, take pictures of it. And by reading about it, I was, I was really intrigued. Like, wow, you know, they had this thing where. Terry Funk said, you know, everyone's on Jerry Lawler's side. Why don't we just be all by ourselves and have the match? I thought it sounded pretty cool. Um, I don't mean to talk about this too much in, in general on podcasts, but uh, I got I got to actually hang out with Terry Funk uh, right after Halloween Havoc 1989. Uh, Dave Meltzer comes up to me, and he's like, hey, you know, don't say anything, but do you want to come up to Funk's room with me? And long story short, you know, of course I went. And Dave told us, you know, don't bring up the thing where he pours motor oil over his head on Florida TV. (laughs) 
and don't bring yes. up the Memphis Empty Arena match. And I'm like, you know, of course, I have to ask why. And he's like, well, Terry, Terry thinks those are both just so stupid. And I, if I recall, if I have my information correct, even after the Empty Arena match, when Terry came back, the matches, you know, all things being relative, didn't draw particularly well. No, I mean, it, it, it did it did okay, but it's not something that was a memorable thing among the Memphis people, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, until the it, uh, until the tape traders made it a, a thing themselves, and it, and then it grew this legendary status. After that, of course, Lance Russell smoking a cigarette and all that stuff. I mean, I mean, it became a legendary angle and moment. And and you know what? I liked it. I I, I more than liked it. I loved it. I thought the match itself. It was in such a unique circumstance, and the match itself was fantastic. And, you know, I know you know, we used the word polarizing earlier. I know a lot of people who do think it's stupid, who do, do think it didn't make any sense, who didn't think it was any good. That, that's fine. But I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And again, it's one of one of my favorite moments in Memphis wrestling history. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I've talked about this ad nauseum on podcast. And Funk so just rambling knows. for like five minutes before Lawler gets there. Oh. It, was, it was, you know, I mean, I love He's Terry amazing. Funk. I love Lance Russell. So you put them out there like that. I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go to volume four. And we begin with some world class here. Kerry and Kevin Von Erich versus Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy from 1983. And then... Kerry Von Erich against Terry Gordy as well for me, three in a Lumberjack match. This is the first year of that feud, and uh, some of the hottest television matches you'll see in that era were coming from world class of this feud. And, God, I mean, there's just so many classic matches from this one year in this feud, both in Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, where do you rank the Von Erich Freebird feud among the pantheon of feuds in wrestling history well let me say this um and this is kind of shameless plug time i have a weekly podcast called stick to wrestling and yeah we me and my friend sean goodwin spent two hours discussing the von erics versus freebirds feud um is it the greatest feud of all time um I, i'm gonna say yes uh it it took a territory that was decidedly minor league that wasn't doing particularly well and, hey, God bless them, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, who were two of the biggest stars in wrestling, bet on themselves. They went into this territory, like I said, that wasn't doing particularly well, especially when Ric Flair wasn't in town, or I should say when Ric Flair wasn't in town. And they turned it upside down, and they turned it into you know just a, a major territory. I think the feud went on way too long, um, and I'm talking just – you know, into like by, I think it was November. They were having loser leave town matches with the Freebirds, and by then yeah. I was like, oh my god, thank God this is over because it, I wasn't used to feuds going ten or eleven months. That's not how, not how it went. I mean, in any promotion I'd ever seen. Um, but at the same time, it was phenomenal. And when you watch it today, you just go, you know, I mean, it was so perfect. It was so organic. And I, I said this on Stick to Wrestling. I don't understand how in 1982 I never said, you know, what if the three Freebirds went and the three Von Erichs feuded? That, like, that would be the most perfect thing ever. I, it just never dawned on me. Absolutely. And WWE Network, every 
pretty much everything is up there from the Dallas television show. So, uh, and, and great quality and you get to see the, you get to see pretty much the full thing, except you don't get some of the intros because of the music, but still, I mean, some of the actions is tremendous stuff and everybody's, you know, pretty much at their peak as far as, you know, athleticism and just crazy, crazy stuff. And, uh, the yeah, thing was, it's, it's except for race. Buddy Roberts, I, you, you can't be, you look back and you can't believe how young everybody was. No, oh, yeah. I mean they were all under twenty five. I want to say Terry Gordy was, I think, twenty two or three. Michael's a, about two years, one or two years older. So yeah, and then of course Carrie. Kevin, Kevin was Kevin. I want to say was like twenty four, twenty five. That's young. He was. He would have been the oldest. Kevin was the oldest in the feud. Yes. Yeah. Other than Buddy, Kevin. <laughs> I, I mean, by wrestling standards, I mean, stop and think about it. What was Ric Flair doing when he was twenty five? You know, he was still on the undercard in the AWA. I think. Uh yeah, he because well he would probably he probably would have just started in uh, Crockett. Yeah, Kevin was twenty six. Okay. In eighty three. So, so most wrestlers are are still making their way up the ladder at those ages. These guys are, you know, I mean, the Freebirds like twenty one, twenty two, headlining the the New Orleans Superdome, and then going to Dallas and totally, you know, reviving that that company. Terry t- Terry actually uh, turned twenty two in April of eighty three. Oh man, and that's ridiculous. Uh, Michael Michael was uh, twenty four in March of eighty three. So there you go. I mean, just anyone listening, you know, pick the wrestler and see where he was at 22, 23 years old. He may not have even been in the business, or he was just just getting started. And Kerry was 23 in February. Flair, at, at that point in 1983, was uh, 34. Okay. So he would have been 24. He would have been 24 in 73 when he started. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy how young everyone in that feud was, and nothing like that, to my knowledge, had been done before. Terry Gordy started wrestling when he was 14. He got got to be on TV tapings against Ernie Ladd. I mean, you know, take a look at your average 14-year-old. I know. It's amazing. All right, then we have Roddy Piper against Jay Youngblood. Time to draw from Mid-Atlantic Television. In 91. And of course, this is also in the WWE Network now. And Piper was really starting to become a thing. This is not too long before he makes his TBS debut. So he's really starting to get a push. And he he's peaking at this point. But Jay Youngblood. Uh, Jay was, was there. He had, of course, a team with Steamboat for all those years. And uh, he's kind of on his own at this point in time as a singles guy. And, um, and of course, you see stuff on the network with him on there now. Jay Yumbo is another guy who kind of has always been under the radar because he died so young. And people really don't talk about him that much. So what's your thoughts on Youngblood and the greatness of Roddy Piper in, in <laughs> Roddy Piper, I mean, I remember first reading about him arriving in JCP, and I had read about him uh, when he was in Los Angeles feuding with Chavo Guerrero. Then I read about him moving up to Portland and becoming a huge star there. 
Now, I'm not knocking the Portland territory. I actually love that wrestling. But it, it compared to JCP, it, it was minor league. And Roddy Piper making the jump from big star in Portland to almost right away winning the United States title in Crockett and getting on the cover of magazines and becoming one of the biggest stars in the industry really quickly, I mean, it, it speaks volumes for the, for the level of talent he had. Absolutely. And Youngblood? Youngblood, I thought, was a good worker, um, and I was a fan of his. Um, but I think had – let's say he had not passed away, and let's say he didn't have the problems that led to him passing away. I, I can see him having a difficult time transitioning into the 80s because by the time the Hogan era had come about – um, first of all, pro wrestling was a lot more physique-oriented than it was even five years ago, let alone ten. And Jay wasn't, didn't have the best physique out there. Now, maybe he could have transitioned himself. I don't know. But number two, um, the day of a wrestler putting on a headdress and saying, you know, my name is Chief Big Heart or whatever and getting over, you know, those days were gone. And I think Jay, he already was was kind of reinventing himself. He did the uh, the Renegade, where he like put on a bunch of makeup and was like this crazy guy, and that didn't get over. And so I think he would have had to reinvent himself. Um, could he have? I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, I'm a little bit afraid that Jay would have been one of those guys, you know, living in a cheap apartment in Dallas and working world class in like 1988. Well, his brother was there in '86. <laughs> and it, so yeah, that's a good point. Probably would have probably, probably would have been there. Well, speaking of world class, we go back to world class here, and Ric Flair versus Dave Von Erich from the Reunion Arena on Christmas night, nineteen eighty-three, four-star match, and this was David Von Erich's last great match, and this was a set. This was match was done as part of the big setup for the Parade of Champions in, in Texas Stadium, where David was going to face Flair again because they did the deal in Fort Worth. A, a month later, where Mike Von Erich lasted 10 minutes with Ric Flair and got David a shot at the belt again, and David was going to name the time and the place that he's going to have that title match. It's, it's going to be Texas Stadium. It was going to be his crowning as champion, and sadly, David died. But this is David's last great match, but it's not in full. They only aired half the match on television. And I've never seen a full version of this match. So uh, what were your thoughts on the match and your thoughts at the time when uh, David passed away? Okay, well, a couple of things. Um, for ever since I have been aware of the internet wrestling community, as it were, and then, you know, I got my first personal computer in 1995, um, there has been an ongoing debate as to whether or not David was really promised uh, the NWA title. And to me, I look back. I, I actually recently, you know, preparing for that stick to wrestling podcast, was watching a lot of world class wrestling, and I, I've always said it, but it, it just reaffirmed it. There was no way world class could not have put the title on David Von Erich without completely burying. Uh, David Von Erich, the Von Erich family, and World Class, they had totally booked themselves into a corner where David had to win that belt. And I, I, am, I am convinced 
that David would have gotten what Kerry had gotten. You know, just a, a three month or a three week run, you know, defending the title maybe in Florida, wherever, and losing it back to Rick in Japan, where they can say, "Oh, a sumo referee screwed David," like they did with Kerry. Mm-hmm. And in Florida makes sense because David had been a big name in Florida. In that is correct, and I, it would have been interesting. Yeah, he would have. He would have been. They would have been able to use him as a babyface because he turned before he left. That's right. Exactly. You know, so it made sense in that regard. But yeah, a tremendous, tremendous match, and just we just. We were robbed of what could have been with David, no doubt, and it's just sad. You know, I've said this before, but David Von Erich, he died so young that had he wanted to, had the stars been aligned, he would have been part of the Monday Night Wars in the 90s. He was basically the same age, and we're talking like a year or two older or younger than like Bret Hart, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall. That's how young David was. Well, who knows how world class's business would have done as well if David doesn't die? David would have been the guy in charge of the business. That's he was he was the guy. That's true. I think I think world class with or without David, with or without Kerry's accident, I, I think world class was doomed. I think we were always kind of destined to be where we are now with one wrestling yeah, company. But it would have been different. Sure. I th- I think I think David would have been more ready to travel around with the with the company that Fritz was. Um, you know, of course your neck of the woods they came into, but I, I bet David would probably want to go to the Boston Garden, not to Lynn, Massachusetts. No offense to Lynn, Massachusetts. Oh please offend but, Lynn, yeah. Massachusetts. That is the worst. <laughs> but I could I could see David wanting to go to Boston. I could see David wanting to go to the Twin Cities where they had television. I could see David wanting to go to these to these places to expand the promotion so you never know we just we just don't know we'll never know you know what though i mean i i think i think david would have outgrown world class and i think he would have been the guy who would have came came to crockett or would have gone to the wwf i mean i've talked about this before if david von eric had survived maybe he would he would be the undertaker or david could have sold the promotion too to uh one of the, the, the you know one of the major guys and then he would have been set yeah, you know that's actually an interesting thought because Vince even when world class was falling apart in 86 I mean Vince still wanted to book the Von Erics so there was a deal to be made oh, absolutely all right speaking of WF we have uh, some WF matches coming up here Adrian Adonis versus Pedro Morales from Madison Square Garden in February 1982 in which you make the statement here that Adonis may have been the best wrestler in the world at this point. We'll talk about that in a second. And Adonis and Jason Ventura at the tag team against Rip McGraw and Steve Travis on their television, where they're on their way out, so they do a double disqualification with McGraw and Travis on television. So Adonis, if people think of Adonis and WWF in, you know, in 86, 87, team with Murdoch in 84, but his 82 run was pretty memorable, too. He had really strong matches with Backlund. He had the, the series with Pedro. Um, and you make the statement, he may have been the best wrestler in the world in 82. So 
What what was your rationale behind that statement? I mean, like you said, he was having amazing matches. I mean, I I just talked about how he had a match in Boston Garden in 1982 with Andre the Giant. That might might have been Andre's best match, but no one, you know, only the only people who saw it was the the 13,000 people in Boston. Um, I mean, Adonis was a bump machine. He had great offense. I thought that. His match against Bob Backlund in Madison Square Garden, the the Texas Death Match, was one of Bob's best matches. They had a lumberjack match from Landover that was outstanding. And, you know, Pedro was not much of a worker uh, in 1982 anymore. He was, you know, he, he could throw the punch, and that's about it. And Adonis got great matches out of him. One thing I wanted to talk about, I think the draw against McGraw and Travis may have been both Jesse and Adrian's final appearance on WWF TV. Um, And believe it or not, McGraw and Travis were over as a tag team. I think that tag team, I think they put it together with the intent of making it just, you know, kind of a prelim tag team and it got over and they didn't push it anyway. Um, This might be, a lot of people might be surprised to hear this, but I know they were going with the Strongbows. I'm not saying that, that, that that they should not have, but Travis and McGraw really truly could have been given a run with the tag team titles. They were, you know, the, the fans loved them. And for whatever reason, they just, the WWF just never got behind them. Yeah, that's a definite what could have been, no doubt. And it would have been better than Jay and Jules, I'm thinking <laughs> that, as far as matches go. Jay and Jules Oof. were over like crazy when they first showed up. I mean, it was it was a phenomenon. And they just took too much time putting the tag team titles on them. It was, you know, it was, I want to say a flash in the pan, but, you know, they were over, like I said, like nuts, and just they didn't get pushed hard enough. Yeah. All right, the next match on here is something we talked about. On this show, Tiger Mask vs. Mr. Saito, and we talked about it on the uh, Boston Garden show, so we'll uh, skip that. Uh, Nate Botwinkle vs. Jerry Lawler, 1982 in Memphis, where Botwinkle is both the AWA and Southern champion and puts the Southern belt on the line against Jerry Lawler's hair. And this was, as you note here, a good idea because it showed that Lawler could pin Nick in a title mm-hmm. match. Three and a half stars. Now, that is a novel concept to do when you have the world champion come in. You have him win that territory's singles title, and then you let him job it back out to the guy that you are trying to push as the top contender for his title. Why don't you think we saw more of that with the NWA champion? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we they did it a little bit. In Georgia, Ric Flair came out, I want to say in early 84, and expressed interest in winning Ronnie Garvin's TV title. And then they did it again in Mid-South, where it it was a little bit different, but uh, Ted Ted DiBiase was North American champion, and now that Mid-South was on WTBS, he won Terry Taylor's TV title. Um, so it, it had been done, but not never quite like that. I actually think I rewatched that match recently, and we were talking about Andre the Giant's greatest match. That I can't think of a better Jerry Lawler match than that one, and I may have not given it enough credit by just giving it three and a half stars. It is a very strong match, no doubt. But Lawler and Botwinkle was a great series. Um, I, I'll put the Lawler-Dundee usually town above that, but still, it's, it, in the pantheon of Lawler matches, it's definitely very high on the list, and 
Spotwinkle, of course, was great in Memphis. And I, I, I just dug this idea that this is a way to show that, hey, this guy can beat the world champion. Yeah. So any time that you have a match between those two, it's believable because the fans saw it happen and beat him. I mean, it's like a non-title match, but it's a, above it because there's, there was a title on the line. So very smart booking by uh, by Jerry Jarrett, whoever was booking Memphis. Day. One other thing quick about that match, that match is a perfect demonstration of a why you need a strong announcer the announcer matters don't just hire one of your buddies from the tv station because this not only was it lawler at his very best it was lance at his very best absolutely and lance gets a lot of credit which he deserved for being able to kind of run the tv show and if a young guy goes out there and he's doing an interview and lance can kind of lead him by the hand but Lance is, is terribly underrated, in my opinion, as a wrestling announcer. When you have that big match and you've got Lance behind the microphone, you know, it, it, it makes a huge difference. Well, one thing that's happened in, in recent years with a lot of newer people getting into the, the Memphis wrestling is the Lance appreciation has definitely gone up. And there's a lot of people that really believe that he – you know, maybe the greatest wrestling announcer of all time now. I mean, there is a definite push for that. So Lance is definitely, you know, his stock has gone up in recent years among the newer fans that have gotten to the older stuff. So it's great to see that because Lance was awesome. And he, Lance was Memphis wrestling as much as anybody oh, else yeah. in, the, in that territory. No doubt. I mean, it, it, I was glad yeah. to see Lance get a shot at the big time in 1989 when he went over to the NWA. Although, I mean, of course, they didn't give him a big enough role. But when he left the Memphis show, I mean, it, it made it, – it, there, was, there was definitely a void. Well, Randy Hales freely admits that when Lance left, the houses weren't the same. I mean, that, that was, and that's part of the reason he thinks is – because Lance wasn't there anymore to do the do the shilling and to get people to come to the shows. It's a, he was an important cog in that machine. Yeah, he, that he was every bit as important as Lawler. And and you know that's not me knocking Lawler. That's just me saying you know I've never I I can't think of an announcer who was more important to their promotion than Lance Russell. I can't even think of who's in second place. Exactly. Well, let's, let's stay in Memphis here. Jerry Lawler against Dutch Mantel. And Dutch Mantel has a rookie manager named Jim Cornette in his corner. And this only lasted one week as Cornette cost Dutch the match. Um, of course, you had, by the time you saw this, of course, Jim Cornette had been a major television star. But what do you think about when you saw him as a rookie manager in Memphis and how, how all that was? It was phenomenal. I mean, I had already, I was already a Cornette fan when I saw all of this, but it was incredible. He comes out and he wants to be Jerry Lawler's manager, and Lawler kind of laughs him off. You know, I don't need a manager, thanks, Jimmy, but you know, you're a photographer. Then he goes to Bill Dundee, and he says, you know, Bill, you know, I want to be your manager, and Bill's like, no, Jim, you know, you were, I'm not anyone's second choice, forget it. And then he goes up to, and, and Cornette. Here's the thing. I'm not doing it as funny as Jim Cornette was in these segments. He is. He just doubled down laughing at this goofy photographer who thinks he just gets to be in the wrestling business. So he, he approaches Dutch, 
And Dutch asked him, you know, do you like to, you know, what do you like, Jimmy? Do you like to get up early and watch cartoons? He's like, oh, no, I, I like to get up early and watch Richard Simmons, you know, with a totally straight face. <laughs> and I forget exactly how Dutch became, how, why Dutch said yes to this. But, you know, of course, Jimmy is grossly underqualified at this point to be anyone's manager, and it shows in the match. And it was, it was just great healdom. And do you, I'm sure you know who Jim's first, uh, Protege sure. sure. That's well, right. First person he managed on television. And yeah. not to be sexist or anything, but you know, the idea that this guy, the best he could do was a woman's wrestler, just made him look so bad in 1982, which was the point. It was great. Yeah, yeah. That's it's really strong stuff, and I put a lot of that up on YouTube. The 1982 nice. stuff for people that haven't seen. So everybody needs to check that out. Uh, a lot of that from, came from you, actually. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right, Bill Dundee versus Steve Kern. December 83 in Memphis. Uh, Dundee is a heel here, about to go to work for Watts. And uh, Dundee has an assistant here, Harley Davidson. Jim Morris, the future hillbilly Jim, looking totally different than what he would look like in WWE. Uh-huh. And, that, and this, is a, this is another thing. Of course, you, I'm pretty sure you probably saw this after hillbilly Jim was a thing in WWF. And it's so different looking at him in this role. Uh, do you think that he could have done something in this type of character, or do you think that the Hillbilly Jim character was the character? I, I thought, you know, there are various things you could do with a guy that size. But the WWF, I mean, seeded him perfectly as Hillbilly Jim. And a lot of people might be surprised to hear this, but Hillbilly Jim, when he first you know, started wrestling in WWF when they did the thing where, you know, oh, look at that big man in the audience, you know, every TV taping. And finally, you know, he becomes Hogan's protege. He really looked set up to be the number two babyface in the company. And he was over. And I didn't particularly like the character, but I mean, the reaction from the crowds in, you know, Boston, Providence, wherever – is that you know the the fans were in love with the guy and maybe it was destined just to be a short term thing, but they didn't do him any favors I thought by bringing in uh, bringing in Uncle Elmer, and then another hillbilly. So now he's getting lost in the shuffle of hillbillies, and then of course the day comes where, what happened first? Did he break his leg or did he walk out? He, I know both happened. He broke it. He broke he broke his leg. Okay, that's right. He broke his leg eighty five, right? He he slipped and fell in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. And then I, right as he was about to really blow up. <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I think by that point maybe the, the gimmick had peaked and I know it was it was a badly broken leg. He was out for a long time. And then he walked out in eighty six, but by that point he was just another baby face. He comes back. He works WrestleMania three, and he, you know, he has a you know, decent career. But yeah, there's definitely what could have been with him, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm more thinking that he was, the gimmick was going to be short lived, but at the same time, they didn't get as much out of it as they could have. Absolutely. Road Warriors versus Jerry Law and Austin Idol in Memphis at, in January 1984. Um, the Road Warriors have been steamrolling everybody on Atlanta television, but these were probably the most competitive matches 
that they had in their early run. You know, so Island of Lawler. Uh, what do you think about the Road Warriors Island of Lawler series? Um, I mean, it was really cool. To this day, it's cool seeing the Road Warriors in Memphis um, because they – I know they, they, they got around – like they worked the Orange Bowl card in Florida in 84. Um, you know, and then they worked the AWA, but really – they didn't do that much outside of Georgia until the AWA run. And it's just, it's cool to see them in that environment because I think they only showed up once and that's it. No, they were there for multiple matches. In okay. No, I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. I meant like they, they did this one series against Lawler and Idol and that was it. Yeah. Uh, I think that they did the fabs. I know in Louisville and uh, they may have had a Memphis match, but I don't remember really airing on television, but they had multiple matches with Island and Lawler on, on, tele, on uh, that air. On right. So, yeah, it was cool. You know, it's a rarity that you get to see them in the Memphis environment. I'm pretty sure they never appeared on television. They just sent in a tape from Georgia. Yeah, they never appeared in the studio. Although, you know, the, the talk was that time period they were supposed to go to Memphis to work in the territory. Uh, uh, but always said, I need to keep these guys. So that's why they stayed. Okay. I think you made the right. Yeah, call. yeah, I think so too. Um, and it's funny, the Road yeah. Warriors story is that you know Ole had been grooming uh, Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne to win the tag team titles, which by the way made no sense. The Georgia tag team titles been had been vacant for like six months, and you don't really need to groom a team and then put them on them. You just put them on them. But whatever happened with Matt Bourne happened, and supposedly. Oli called up uh, the trainer in Minneapolis, uh, Sharky, and said, you know, Andy Shark. okay, right, and said, you know, do you have two guys that I can use for this gimmick? And it was going to be, was it going to be Hawk and Rick Rude or Animal and Rick Rude? It was going to be Hawk and Rick Rude, and Animal had already been there. Once, that's right. You know, as as the Road Warrior. And, and so that's where they came up. For with. whatever reason, Rude didn't want to do it, and <laughs> big mistake, Rick. Yeah, and Rude was there. Rude came in as he was a, a, a white meat baby. Fan. That's right. He was. They were pushing him as the the world's arm wrestling champion, and he had a really good and unique physique where he had just about no fat on him whatsoever. And yeah, I I would look at Rick Rude in 1983, and I would have never. You know, we were talking about this earlier, guys. Who where were they when they first started out? I would have never guessed that Rick Rude would have turned into what he turned into. Yeah. Ric Flair versus Greg Valentine in Raleigh in 1983, with Flair challenging for the U.S. title. This is uh, between title, world title reigns. So that's a cool little uh, difference here in, in, in this type of deal here. Flair Valentine, legendary tag team, feuded on and off for years there. And Flair's going for the U.S. title since he's not world champion anymore. Yeah, and, you know, at this point... I don't know any better. Um, you know, I am prepared for life with Ric Flair not being NWA champion anymore. You know, the same way that, you know, Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr. were former NWA champions. I figured, well, that was going to be Rick, the rest of Ric Flair's career. You know, little did I realize. Oh, yeah. Yes, he would become the guy, no doubt. Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen against the Funks in Japan in 1982. Four and a half star match on the rating here. And uh, Brody and Hanson, of course, you had seen them you know, here many times. But when you saw them as a tag team in Japan and you started you know, hearing this stuff about it, uh, what did you, you think about them as a combination? 
Well, I first saw them when they were in the WWF. They would team frequently. This is like late 76, early 77 when they were both single stars out here. Um, they were part of that ridiculous tag team tournament they had in 77 when the executioners were stripped of the belts. Um, that was 76, sorry. Um, so I had seen them before. But I was unaware of them teaming in Japan until, once again, I started trading for tapes. And we were talking about two of the greatest super heavyweights of all time, you know, teaming together. And, I mean, you look at these two, and you're like, you know, who is ever going to beat these guys? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Andre the Giant and, and Wells, you know? And, and, and you look at the way the timing was set up. Um, by the time the Road Warriors get to all Japan, Brody's gone. Yeah. So... You really don't get that Road Warriors Brody Hansen classic that you probably could have got because Brody went to, to New Japan. Yeah, that would have been just uh, – I mean in the United States or Japan, but especially in Japan, you know, that would have been a, a major, major series. I wonder if the Road Warriors would have been willing to, to do jobs for Hansen and Brody. Oh, there would have been not finish. Oh, there would there would have been a clean finish. No, I mean, <laughs> no <way>. like in <laughs> one match, you're obviously going to get you know the double count out the same way you got at, at Battle of the Belts when it was Hanson and Race against the Road Warriors. But if you're going to have exactly. a series, I mean, at some point you would think someone's got to lose. Someone's got to lose. You you would hope so, but you can't. It could never tell with these four. All right, speaking of, and, and speaking of matches without clean jobs, Ric Flair versus Austin Idol from. Alabama in 1982, where the dusty finish, quote-unquote, made an appearance in Alabama as the ref was knocked out. Another referee counted Flair out and awarded Idol the NWA title, but the original ref reversed it. So, yes, folks, Dusty may have perfected this finish, but it was done well before he was doing it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I actually watched that match maybe a week ago. Okay, well, it's fresh in your mind. So go talk about it. Um, I remember. Okay, the biggest thing was that it was it was almost raw footage. You had like a, a single camera recording the event. It's house show, yeah. And then you had Lars Anderson uh, in the uh, the corner of the screen doing commentary, and it was a really good match. I mean, Jack Briscoe. No such thing as a bad Briscoe match. Idol was on on this night. Oh, this is the Flair match, not Jack Briscoe. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was it was you know typical Ric Flair never having a bad match, and you know it it was in an outdoor stadium somewhere. I think it was in Dothan. I might be wrong, and I I come to learn that that's just what they did a lot of the time out there because. Uh, it's hot in the summer in the south, as we all know, and if you're inside of a building, it, it can be really hot after a day of the sun pounding on that building. So, you know, like I said, it, it was a good match, and um, it was cool seeing Idol wrestle for the NWA title. And Idol, he was a big-time babyface in, in Alabama, you know, in the Southeastern Territory. And uh, they, they definitely had him in, in that credibility level where you could believe that he could beat the world champion. So yeah, it's really cool. Idol's uh, relationship with Continental in the eighties. I'm not overly familiar with it, but it, it's interesting. It's almost like you know, Austin was so over, and he just got to call his own shots. Up until a certain point, and then they, and then he left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he came and went as he pleased, you know. And if, if you know he wasn't happy, he just went home. It looked like. Oh yeah, that, well, he did that at a lot of places. That's yeah. For sure. <laughs> I mean, good for him if All he right. can do it. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. We talked about Adrian Adonis in WF nineteen eighty two. He went after he left WF, he went back to the AWA. And he faced Hulk Hogan in Minneapolis in October nineteen eighty two. And uh, you talked about how sensational Adonis was here, three star match, and this really is a hell of a match. And it, it, and it's not just Adonis, folks. Hulk Hogan in 1982 was a pretty damn great worker, too. So uh, what were your thoughts on these two here? Well, yeah, I mean, Adonis knew what his job was. It was to make Hulk Hogan look good, and he did it. Um, Hogan was, you know, Hogan at this point, when he wanted to be, he was a really good worker. There are some good Hulk Hogan matches out there, you know, from the early 80s, even mid-80s. When Hogan turned on the switch, he could go. Absolutely, and Adonis, of course, this was a was amazing in this era. So, you know, great compliments to each other here. Yeah, and uh, we we talked about it before. I mean, if Adrian Adonis wasn't the best wrestler in the world in you know eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, he was certainly. I mean, t- to say he's in the top five is is an understatement. You know, maybe Flair was better than him, but if he was, it wasn't by much. Uh, Slaughter is in there. Steamboat, you know, Adonis is in that rarefied air. Absolutely. Speaking of other great workers, we go to 1980 Florida and to a rookie, Barry Windham, as we have clips of him versus Mr. Saito in a TV match against Bobby Jaggers, which this is what you said about this match. Excellent match, all action. I used to get CWF on cable during this period, and Jaggers was my favorite wrestler. Mm -hmm. See, this match reminded me why. Too bad he never made it big. But never so much when Crockett picked him up in 86. He bloody buried with his loaded elbow pad, three and three-quarter stars. Why did you love Bobby Jagger so much? Bobby Jaggers, here's the thing. I, I saw him in Florida for the first time. The guy could talk. The guy could wrestle. The guy could move. He had Lord Alfred Hayes as his manager. And Lord Alfred Hayes was fantastic in Florida. I don't know what happened. When all of these guys left Florida, I saw Lord <laughs> Alfred Hayes in Mid Atlantic, and I was I, I was completely unimpressed by him. I when I started getting Southwest Championship Wrestling on USA Network, I was like, yes, Bobby Jaggers, I get to see him again. Uh, the light went off. He was not the same guy. I don't know if it was you know Eddie Graham or Dusty Rhodes or whoever that was you know putting these guys in the right spots and. You know, Pushing them to have good matches or to, to you know, coaching them to be good at what they did, but they were way better in Florida than they were anywhere else. At, at this point, I saw Bobby Jaggers as a rising star. I saw him as someone who could go to Georgia and win the Georgia title, or could come up to the Northeast and have a two or three uh, match set against Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden. That's how much I thought of him. Yeah, Bobby Jaggers is one of these guys who, uh, again, just doesn't get talked about much. And he was a really strong worker. And definitely in Southwest, he was really good, too. Puerto Rico, he's really good. So, um, yeah, Bobby, I, I really dug Bobby Jaggers as well. Yeah. Definitely. And Barry Windham, of course, he's a rookie here, but you see it. You see that once he gains the weight, once he gets experience, this guy's got it. Yeah. I, I mean, to this day, I think Barry Windham – you know, is someone who could have carried the NWA title. He's someone who could have main evented a WrestleMania against Hulk Hogan in a heel role. Absolutely. And it's just too bad we didn't see any of that. I know. Dusty Rhodes and Jack Briscoe versus Dick Slater and Bobby Jaggers in an unscheduled brawl. 
in Florida, where Jaggers busted Dusty's head up with that loaded elbow pad. So they're really getting Jaggers over here with that elbow pad. And uh, the last match on this tape, the last tangle in Tampa, Harley Race and Dusty Rose for Tampa Stadium. Fritz Von Erich is the referee. Dusty wins the only fall in a two out three fall match, but so he failed to capture the NWA title. And then he cuts this great promo about he never he wants he's promised to never wrestle for the title again as long as Harley Race holds the belt. Of course, he won it from Race a year later. Race begged Dusty to wrestle him on the grounds that wrestling Dusty raised Harley's credibility. And you, your words here, nice ego, Dust. <laughs> so. Your, your your thoughts on, on that whole, you know, presentation that Dusty's putting on saying that I'm not going to wrestle you for the title. You you have to ask me to do it. You, you're you going to have to, you know, basically beg me to, to, to wrestle for the title. Okay. I got Florida Championship Wrestling on cable at this point, and I was, I was 15 years old. And even as a 15-year-old magazine mark, I knew how – ridiculous that was and I saw it play out on TV where Harley Race was you know offering Dusty to wrestle for the title and Dusty was saying no and I was like this is be and I didn't even understand that Dusty I had no way I didn't know what a booker was I didn't know that Dusty was the booker and they had points in the company I didn't know anything and I'm like this is totally ridiculous this whole scenario is absurd someone and I will try to find it posted an article that was written in one of the Tampa newspapers where the writer just savaged Dusty Rhodes over this. This was after the last tangle in Tampa, and he was complaining about how after years and years of Dusty you know, wrestling for the title and always winning the matches but never becoming champion was absurd. And this guy was just, you know, shattered kayfabe, but he didn't care. He's not part of the business. And he was totally right, and it just goes to show you that – um. You know, people really did sometimes think for themselves before there was such a thing as newsletters or the internet or whatever. I will try to dig that article up. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's something. D- Dusty was Dusty, no doubt. There was nobody like him. Nobody like. Him. I mean, and Dusty, you know, he he started wrestling. Uh, I don't know if he ever wrestled Jack Briscoe as a babyface in Florida. I know no. he wrestled Terry Funk. I'm sorry, what'd you say? No, he ne- he wrestled Jack as a heel. Okay, we never wrestled Jack. They never had a, a singles match against each other after Dusty turned face. All right, so he had a bunch of matches against Terry Funk in Florida oh, in yeah. 1976, and he he just buried the NWA title. Terry Funk never was allowed to look even, you know, he looked defenseless against Dusty Rhodes, and the only way. Terry kept the titles by getting DQ'd. What's the point of even having a match if you know the champion's just going to get disqualified to keep the title? Then he wrestled Harley Race. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times he wrestled Race in Florida over the years. You know, by by the time we're getting into 1980, we're three and a half years into Race's reign. And, you know, Dusty keeps winning matches and never winning the belt. And at some point, you just got to be like, you know, you've got to change the script. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this was Dusty's way of changing the script. And it's, it's really creative as far as, you know, putting yourself above the NWA title. 
Yeah, exactly. And then we we did all we do it again with Ric Flair, not only in Florida, but starting in 1985, we're doing it with Flair nationally for like you know two or three years. Dusty's better than Flair, but he's not the champion. Pretty much, pretty much. That's the way the perception was. Now, I, I don't mean to bag right. on Dusty. He's one of the greatest wrestlers yeah. of all time. He's a great booker, but like all bookers, the, you know, the ego tends to get in the way. Absolutely. They all, all the bookers pretty much have had their egos. All mm-hmm. of them. You know, some, some were able to keep it in check most of the way, but still, that it was there. It was definitely there for every one of your great bookers, mm-hmm. no doubt. All right. Well, that's it for us on this uh installment of the show all right john go ahead and plug uh, your podcast right well if you if you like me on this show uh i invite you to check out the stick to wrestling podcast uh sean goodwin and i are on every week uh it's released uh, thursday night at midnight and we we pretty with the name stick to wrestling was kind of sarcastic you know anytime someone doesn't like you know what what uh for example someone uh recently told dave dave melcher to stick to star ratings you know so it's kind of a sarcastic <laughs> take on that but it, it's an hour long every week and we do more or less stick to wrestling and it's a good time so i, I it's easy to find just McAdam stick to wrestling in google and you'll find it and I, I hope you listen and enjoy absolutely absolutely everybody listen when they get a chance now li- you can listen to us in our next installment hopefully in next month where we'll discuss a couple things such as jj uh, dylan in women's underwear we'll discuss jim Cornette getting his head shaved and how that must have hurt like hell uh bill watts bearing jyd on television the Freebirds and JYD in Atlanta, Bruiser Brody doing commercials for car dealers in St. Louis, the First Family Picnic, Tommy Rich winning the NWA title, Vern Gagne retiring, a lot, a lot. So be ready for the next installment of uh, Wrestling from the 80s. I remember that tape. All right, John. Oh, yeah. You got two good two good ones here that we'll talk about on the, on the next show, no doubt. Two really good. All right, I'm sure by the time the next show is done, I'll be crying about Tennessee being one and three or whatever they are. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've been recording these on Saturday, so we're going to probably figure out a, a, a different day of the week to record these. We're, Affirmative, sir. And enjoy our Saturday, fo- uh, Saturday football <laughs> sessions. We'll get that figured out, believe me. All right, John, it's always a pleasure to have you on with me, and I uh, can't wait hey, next thank time. you for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.